Good morning, people of the planet Earth. You are listening to the Stream of Random Podcast. It is 4.58 in the morning on a drizzling, lightly raining, somewhat cold, somewhat foggy, northern Pennsylvania day. You may ask yourself, why are you walking in the rain? And my answer is, I'm not a casual walker. I'm a dedicated walker. And a little bit of rain shouldn't stop you. A little bit of cold shouldn't stop you. Now, if it was heavily raining, that would be an issue. But having to change your clothes after your walk and having wet feet is not an excuse. It also builds up your immune system and makes you stronger mentally and physically. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Now, let's have a nice sip of this coffee for the first time this morning. Damn, that's good coffee. So uh, today we have our first big feedback from a listener. And we got the um, one of our listeners from the, city, the country of Albania. The girl who I mentioned previously has sent us a some feedback, some notes, which I'm going to read <clears throat> to kick off the show, and then we're going to uh, to discuss these points. I think we should um, read them point by point, and then, uh, well, I can read the whole thing, and then discuss them point by point, so that we'll get, uh, we'll get this kicked off. And, uh, yeah, anyone who sends me a note or sends me a voicemail or gives me feedback, we'll put that on the show, and we will, uh, not anybody. Like, if we ever get to Joe Grogan's level, where he gets thousands and thousands and thousands of emails, he says he doesn't even look at anything, any of the Facebook comments. But, um... Yes, for the dedicated few... Oh, by the way, that sound you hear? That's, uh... Those are fracking... Fracking trucks. Trucks carrying water... To and from fracking sites. Up here in northern Pennsylvania, that's what makes the world go round. This fracking. Which is a form of energy... Um, extraction by pumping water into the ground and pumping it out again and they're all into water hydrofracking we have lots of big trucks close this jacket here at least 
Need to get some gloves. Okay, let's pull up this Evernote app. Monday the 26th. <sighs> Feeding an AI data from the podcast to make a future mic. And she also said that she doesn't like the sound of her voice. So that's why I'm going to read it. <clears throat> as entertaining as the idea of a virtual you might sound, it'd probably be nothing like you. Just like the rest of AI is nothing like actual human intelligence. Like you said further into the podcast about genetics being a system to bring information forward, the only way an AI would be cyber mic would be the whole genetic material of the actual mic copied down to the last quantum particle holding genetic material and then translated into binary. Although fictional, it's still fascinating to think about. Like a, like a complete copy, a, uh, a warp. Okay. So what else? The ideal listener listens to all the podcasts and understands them in the same way that Mike understands them, the things he's talking about. Well, we'll try. The equivalents... Hold on. This is getting wet. The equivalence model of computation of how generic programming concepts can be modeled or put together to represent the same completeness. I'm no expert or even an intermediate beginner learner. But to my mind, that seems doable. UML, Jekyll, Ruby system modeling. So I said, I'm really a beginner. I'll put down some notes for me here too, but I actually have an idea what you're talking about. UML stands for Unified Modeling Language. It's a language used to model software system solutions, application structure, system processes, business processes. Jekyll is an easy way to build websites. Ruby is a framework which is known for its productivity and simplicity. You can combine them to make a user-friendly systems. Did I get it right? You also said you wanted to come up with your own notation, basically coming up with a small syntax that can bootstrap itself. A unified model that connects functional objects and object-oriented model object-oriented together. Now that sounds great. But how much memory usage is that going to require? <clears throat> as far as I know, Ruby does take up a lot of memory. Maybe you should opt for more efficient language. that uses fewer resources. Otherwise, a worldwide distribution for everyone, despite the opportunities and finances you, that you have in mind, explain further podcasts might not come to life. Accessibility of said model. Accessibility is a technological issue that's being criminally left aside. Everyone who knows how to write and owns a smartphone connected to the internet could do that part by putting tags or alt text in non-text and visual content, at least, the blind and disabled people who rely on screen readers can experience it. Okay, creating something that is aesthetically pleasing as a method to teach young children, as it's going to be easy on the eye and also accessible by everyone. Since not everyone can afford an education, this could be revolutional. Not only people from all over be able to learn by the price of only sheer will, but the teaching model would be so much more efficient 
and the assistance of the tutor no longer be needed. And this model system would be the teacher and the assistant at the same time. For example, let's say you're listening to some kind of podcast form lesson, and you hear a word that you've been, that you've been explaining in previous lessons, you can't recall what it means. The system should be able to distinct the specific word and find the other mentions in the previous lessons. That can show you them in order to recall the meaning. Can't machine learning already do that? Yes. Okay. Very good. Okay, so let's go over some of these questions. So, maybe I wasn't exactly clear when I mentioned Ruby on Rails. Um, so let's go over that real quick. And I was going quite fast, so let's break this all down. So at the model level of a program, we are describing structures. We are creating structures. So in Ruby on Rails, you use the Ruby class system to define a class and say, oh, I have a customer and the customer has a name. Hold on, I gotta fix my leg here. I have a customer, the customer has a name, the customer has an address. So you're modeling your object. And then from that model, it will generate a database for you to store that model. This is the Ruby on Rails mo um, model system. Um, Django does the same thing. You create a class in Python and it generates a database model. It has like, you can do basic database modeling with it. Um, <clears throat> many to many, one to one, but it definitely has its limitations. Um, with UML, you can describe much more complicated database models for sure. Now all of this is just on the modeling level. So this is actually before the program's even running. Um, this is not for the, well it is for the runtime in the website, for example. Um, inside of the website, you'll also be running like Django, Python, or Ruby, or any of these other model view controller systems. But the basic idea is that you define a model in the language of um, whatever implementation language you're using, using the class structure and then annotations. And then somehow, um, you inspect those models, you inspect the class structure or the, the language uh, system using annotations. In Python, you can just easily tag a class and say, oh, well, this is a special kind of class, and I want to uh, go over all the fields of it, for example, and I want to do something special with it. Now, in C++, it's not as easy, though maybe with modern tools it's possible. Um, 
And this is a desolate part of town. I don't even want to go here. But we're going to continue looking. Actually, we're not going to go this way. I walked right from the tourist area into the industrial area. I'll go back to the tourist area. So, <clears throat> the question is what time, there's different times of, of programming. There's the compile time and the runtime. So, and then there's these preparation migration time or uh, prepare the application deploy time. So in the deploy time, which is before the runtime, so basically before the running inside of the web server, you're going to execute the code in a special way to pull out the um, the definitions of the database and generate uh, the database changes, the migration. So this is a model transformation. You're going from the class model that you've defined in your language to a database model. And they support all different types of databases. So that's like the whole promise of these ORM systems. Object Relational Mapping. And um, So you've got these ORMs, and then at runtime in the website, you can uh, pull up a, um, at runtime in the website, you can pull up a, uh, an object and load it from the database. So it's like, oh yeah, take this ID and turn it into a customer object. And it knows how to read from the database the customer object into memory and do all that stuff. So you can just interact with the database via the Ruby or Python object model and never really have to worry directly about the SQL for the most part. So that's pretty cool. That's kind of like a warm and fuzzy safe space for programmers. It ends up producing horrible queries and hard to tune applications. But it's kind of like an easy, an easy beginner's way to get into uh, programming. <clears throat> so, I'm just thinking about DBase3 and all these old um, database languages where you would program directly on the database. Okay. So now, 
I don't think I mentioned Jekyll directly. Um, I think I'm, there might be some confusion. But when I'm talking about a notation and a uh, model, I'm thinking more on a um, on this abstract level, on the UML basically level, on the unified modeling language, and um, being able to add in uh, functional. Uh, languages to UML and I have to look at what's available. I haven't actually done the research and I'm sure people have tackled this problem before like making UML um, well, merging or creating a unified model between uh, functional languages and uh, object-oriented languages. So we're going to have to think about that some more. <clears throat> and it's a deep subject. <clears throat> but I was thinking that um, we could create a system that could... Uh, start out with simple parts and build a more and more complex layers and layers of representation like we mentioned before like I need to think about this some more, but these are good uh, good topics to talk about. It's going to actually need some um, to do some actual research. But what I'm kind of getting at is, um, if you look at UML, there's another language underneath it called Meta Object Framework which kind of defines a lower level of objects and classes on what top of which UML is built. <clears throat> but it's a pretty particularly nasty, and that's used to build the XMI, which is the XML representation or the interchange model for UML. So UML is really a huge mess <clears throat> that the systems are not even compatible with each other. There's no rep there's a representational standard, but that representational standard is junk. It's not aesthetically pleasing, it's not beautiful. And I'm thinking that we could create a notation, a textual notation, <clears throat> a programmatic notation that would define the model, the metal model, whatever it is, all those models, layers and layers of models. Um, define the data and attributes that we need, define the uh, properties, the attributes are properties, but define 
also functional relationships all on a level of data notation or notation a language and maybe that language is something like Haskell Haskell maybe it's something else I'm hoping it would be something simple and easy to use and I think I have to try it out but oh yeah and then with that language we'll be able to describe um, other systems be able to pull them in and be able to annotate them just like you said tagging images for blind people like we could pull in a Java model and mark it up so that it fits into the universal model if that's even possible like is there such a thing as a universal model right this is something I've been struggling with my whole life is there a universal model or is there not a universal model and I've always thought there that there is one and now by studying philosophy I'm starting to think that maybe there is not a universal model or at least the universal model might be more complicated than we want it to be in any case um, <clears throat> This topic, I think, should be done more on the doing level. And I will talk about it more um, when we get some examples. But my basic idea would be that, yeah, I said like import git. Like we could pull in the git system from the source code, and then we would mark up the, the data structures in the C code or the data structures on disk because a lot of times you could see git as just a disk based specification like you're modeling the data itself not even the data in memory but the data on disk and to understand git you really have to understand that file system level information like blobs and hashes and refs and all that fun stuff so if you say import git like we want a cool high-level model of that of those data structures and those should be derived from the source code and maybe with some proof that they actually correspond um, and then we could say, oh, well, there's a Python lib for Git. And we could import that. And then we could show a correspondence between the Python lib's implementation and the actual Git specification, even. So we could check each feature of Git and make sure that it's implemented properly be able to generate tests based on the model 
and then feed them to an implementation and check that it actually matches. All of this on a higher level where we're just dealing with the concepts um, presented. So that's kind of um, would be like the ideal world. We could just like list over the concepts and permutate over um, combinations of those things in appropriate manners. And that's kind of what we do with the database model in um, Ruby on Rails. And even the actual implementation of this thing could be in any language. Though I do, I am tending towards Haskell just as a amazingly powerful system. But it has to have a nicer presentation layer. And we, we want it to be easy to understand, at least to approach, and to be pretty to look at. So yeah, um, And what I'm saying here is that there is some connection. Like you can look at any, you can look at any language, any computing language, and um, you feed it some string of that language, and it's going to break that string down into pieces and subsegment it. And it's going to identify identifiers. It's going to show relationships between parts of the string. It's going to create a whole topology, a whole map of what part of the string means what. And just by observing how the language code is consuming that string and how it's copying pieces around or identifying pieces and moving them around, just by watching the data flow of the compiler it will give actual meaning to that input string. So we can learn something <clears throat> about the language in an abstract way, just by observing how the computation is done, if that makes any sense. And that's the principle of the introspector idea, is that we can learn something about a high-level concept by a deep study of the low-level concept, low-level implementation, and by aggregating that information together. And you'll see commonalities between all these different languages in terms of they all have tokens, they all have, you know, syntax trees of some kind, or tree structures, or some kind of structures. And this we can also model and uh, set up ways to capture and explain that information. And again, like accessibility, like tagging for the blind, we can tag this information and make it usable by everybody. And this gets directly into um, A lot of the fights, you know, if you even mention this kind of idea, it will make people very upset 
because, well, first of all, they're going to say, well, these implementations are not supposed to be public. We reserve the right to change them. They're kind of like the internals. But I think that the internals of the language are the important parts. Because the internals are what the computer can understand. They're what is computable. Um, and automatically follow, followable. And everything else has no meaning, absolutely. Right? Like all the human language stuff that describes things is kind of fluffy. It's subject to interpretation, it's subject to aesthetics, it's subject to definitions of meaning and all that stuff. But the computing stuff is absolutely executable. And even if you have something that you have no idea why it works, but it does work, you can study it as an object. The guy who came up with the fractals, he's like, Lorenz, I think, he was doing some study in um, weather. And he found out that the slightest changes in his model, in his parameters, would create wildest changes in his simulation. And he discovered the basis of chaos functions and, and fractals. He was trying to create a weather function. He ended up creating a fractal or a chaos function. And um, he studied it and studied it and studied it. He actually studied it as a subject. It's like, wow, I came up with this function. I don't know how it works. I don't have the meaning. It doesn't have a model. We have to discover it. So we're actually studying the uh, random implementation of something as a subject of study. And this is now my proof that code is not art. <clears throat> because you can have random code. You can have buggy code. You can have unintended code. And it's not carrying the... Um, it's not, um, well, okay, maybe it is art in a very, very modern, strict sense. But it's not carrying a message, where the message is wrong. Like, oh yeah, this is a weather function. No, it's not. It's a chaos function. It's not modeling the weather. Right? It's not doing what it says it's supposed to do, or what you think it's going to do. It actually breaks your mental concept. Um, and we don't know what it's doing. We don't know why it's doing it. And the computing is full of that. And it turns you into like a forensics person. And they say that the, the creepers in Minecraft were created by an accident. as a software bug. Um, <clears throat> and that might be even possible. I mean, I'm sure lots of things were created as a bug. Random mutations. 
you know, let's say you have some merge conflict. And this is where we get into, you know, get in version control. You have all these people working on the project and somehow you merged it wrong. Right? You've produced a, an unstable or unknown software. Like, is that art? Is that art? Merging two random branches of code together and accepting some changes and accepting other changes randomly or semi-automatically, is that actual art? Like, what version is it? What is its intent? Or did we break the intent? Is it now an adulterated system? So we're kind of getting more into the quality control. Um, if this was an FDA system, they would say it's no longer it's no longer a um, let's say it's adulterated. It's changed. It's no longer a high quality item. And I guess this all gets into uh, these proof systems, which are horrible, 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 horrible proof systems, software validation, verification, and they are horribly mathematical, but maybe that's what we need, and maybe that's what I'm moving towards. <clears throat> in some way, but we need to make it more accessible. We need to make it more beautiful. We need to make it easier to use. And we need to combine it together. So yeah, I mean, then I guess we're gonna have to include the system of proofs in this language, like we mentioned before. Now, <clears throat> when I was thinking about um, the virtual mic based on the podcast, obviously it wouldn't be me, but I was thinking at least it would be able to um, pick up on, let's say, the topics discussed, dereference everything, load that all in, and have some kind of discussion based upon what was said and um, be able to let's say talk about one topic or remember everything about one topic and as you said do, do we need AI to just like look up a keyword no we don't but uh, to consider a concept And, um, my theory, let me state it again, my theory on, uh, computing and AI is that, you know, AI might not be able to talk about the world, but if we have a closed world, the world of computing, 
And as I, I tried to break this down a couple times in previous podcasts, like if you have the compiler that compiles itself, right? The world is very much closed for that particular instance. It's not clear how that compiler will be used in the future. But the fact that it needs all the code to compile itself, it needs all the code to compile the operating system, like that little part of the world is pretty much a fixed point. It's like a fixed point that you can go to. And um, that part, we could have an AI talk about, and it would have like full knowledge. It could know every single bit about what happened during that process and why it happened. Like, it could describe it in detail. So, in terms of a model of the world, you know, you might be able to not be able to model like humans and how they, why they do things, but for discrete deterministic processes, um, it could definitely serve as a knowledge base. Looks like someone else is walking in the rain today. And they have an umbrella. Hey, I could have brought an umbrella. But I got a rain jacket and a hoodie. in the rain. I'll just go back in the other way. He's going in the other way. I'll go the other way. All right. So yeah, at least, and I hope to do this in my life, is extract a voice model for myself to create a text-to-speech system that could speak with my voice to convert all the podcasts from voice to text to create a voice-to-text model that would detect my voice and uh, spit out the text and then apply um, language tools on it so that we might be able to make a connection between the computing models that we're talking about, the source code, and the human language. And in the end, uh, why can't we just code by speaking? Can't we just write programs by talking about them? and um, get feedback from the computer and be like, well, you know, you talked about this and we understood that. And uh, what about this part that you haven't talked about? Because it would be building this model 
and then checking the model and saying, oh, well, you missed this part. Or this part is not resolving. Can you help me resolve it? So that would be like the ultimate assistant. And I do think that um, no matter what happens, as I mentioned before, we're going to get better and better AI assist for coding. And there's going to be less boilerplate. There's going to be less copy and paste. We're going to be moving more towards feature engineering and data modeling and, you know, proofs. Like, hey, it's nice... It's nice that your program can generate this code, but can you prove that it actually works, right? Can you prove that it matches the specification? And that's what I'm talking about. Like, what are we gonna do to specify programs better? What are we gonna do to prove that they work? How can we make those specifications more human readable, but still powerful? Because if you ever look at some of these um, C-O-Q, cock, uh, the uh, French word for rooster, the proof language, it is just amazingly horrible. Aesthetically unpleasing, let's put it that way. Um, <clears throat> and the proofs are horrible to read. So maybe we have to apply visualizations to that and start studying how to make that easier to use, more intuitive. And um, I think that will get into the issue of, as we talked about, um, that these language level and, um, you know, we talked about is math, how to visualize math, right? Well, how do you visualize a proof? And at some point, you're going to get into the area that it's not easily visualizable. It's going to require a leap of the mind. And these things are non-visual. And um, at least that's my current understanding. But we can explore this area more and maybe we'll find uh, some better ways to do it, some tricks. Maybe uh, we have a breakthrough. So those are the areas that I've explored um, on this topic of my years of researching into this introspector idea. And it's an unfinished um, business and I have to also improve my skills to make progress on it. And I guess part of it is reviewing what's been done and, and restating it and uh, reformulating it, rethinking of it. Okay, so that's kind of my answer to uh, the listener feedback.
Um, now I want to get to a topic we discussed yesterday, which is the word structure, or struct, instruct, construct, instruction, execute, and then, so, I, I think that um, not all instructions are instructions for construction, right? So only some of the instructions, some instructions could be destruction, destruct. Some instructions could be for many other things. There's many other effects that could be caused by an instruction. Or they could even be no ops, no instructions. No operations. Think about work again. So the um, instruction as a symbol that's interpreted uh, by an interpreter. So we get into this whole um, decoding of it. Encoding, decoding of symbols, interpretation of symbols, and then that is basically, um, that gives you an interpreter, someone who's actually doing it, and we could call that the executor, the, the chip, like instructions could just be instructions for a chip, they could be instructions for a brain, a child, um, And I was saying we have instructions for the construction of models and ideas. In Lisp, it's cons. Construct from a list. Construct a list. Um, construct a list from these elements as like a basic function. And um, I think they're called S expressions. Um, creating lists and lists of nested lists. And that that is the basic form of all construction. You can think of it like a JSON. Like everything you can say in JSON, um, you can say in Lisp. We've got lists of lists, you've got maps, and a map again is just a, a special kind of list with a, two pairs, with tuples in it, key value pairs. Um, 
Now it doesn't support references. Hold on, let me put this phone somewhere. Out of the rain. May my phone not get wet. Let's hope that this podcast is getting recorded properly. But basically, Lisp shows us that we can construct everything with just lists of lists um, nested as much as we need to be nested. But it's not necessarily aesthetically pleasing. And, um, you know, we can go to YAML JSON syntax, YAML syntax. YAML allows you to have references. And it's a pretty good syntax. Now, could we denote everything in YAML? Well, that's kind of what Ansible does. It just uses specially formed YAML to do everything. And maybe uh, YAML can be the language um, we deal with. And maybe we can just write our interpreter for this high-level language in um, Python. We'll see. I'm hoping that we can make it concise and beautiful and easy to use. And maybe it has to turn into something interactive. See, the UML diagrams are interactive. And we really have to get to the question of, is it a notation or is it a process? Is it a function? And maybe it's just an interactive function, like a chaos function that takes the world and returns the world in a new state. And interacts with the user and the user changes the world or changes the parameters when that feeds back in and produces a new world. <clears throat> but then how do we model that input and make it serialized? How can we just type that in without having to? So we want to be able to type it in or speak it in as well as interact. So there should be some kind of equivalence between the interaction and the, um, the text input.
so that they can be interchanged. But the interactive part should be for displaying and grouping and kind of like clicking together things, making visual associations. And then we want to be able to describe those, make them accessible to a blind person, and make it concise for them. So I think we're going to have like a core bootstrap system. system that's going to be able to, to do the most basic operations and then from that we can build everything else out. And to get it to bootstrap quickly we really do want to use existing languages. Like I'm thinking a simple like Flask micro web service. that has JSON or YAML and a website and the URL and can't we just type everything into the URL bar? Is that not already a language enough? Like don't we have enough languages already with web technology that we don't have to reinvent everything? And I'm, I like uh, jQuery in that respect. Maybe it is jQuery. And to be honest with you, what I was thinking about previously was making a jQuery front end for Haskell back end to model everything. and go through layers and layers of code where one layer can generate the next layer. And I guess it doesn't matter what you use because the bootstrap system will eventually um, be self-hosted. Like if you're in C, like you need the first C compiler to bootstrap and if you have a Pascal, if you have a different language on your system you could use that other language to write the first basic parts of the compiler and then use that to build the rest you only need to port a core language just like Go, Go only needs a core language to be implemented then it can bootstrap the rest of the language What is that bootstrap? What is the essence of the bootstrap? Sheer will. That the person can, through sheer will, as our listener said, raise themselves up, lift themselves up, and bootstrap themselves. And uh, is that sheer will 
aesthetically pleasing? Is it nice and pretty to look at? I don't think it is. It may be beautiful from a conceptual point of view, but um, you know, going through the bootstrap phase, you're going to have to look at a lot of nasty code, a lot of compromises, a lot of hacks to reach the point of purity. Becoming a self-hosted system. Kind of like PyPy, the Python compiler written in Python. I mean, that thing takes forever to compile. And even the GCC compiler will go through like three stages. Like use the system compiler to compile itself. Then use that compiler to compile itself and then optimize it again with the third stage. Something like that. Phew, I'm walking uphill here. Um, let's check this recording. Let's pray to God that it works. It says the microphone's on. Recording, 58 minutes. Okay. That was some quite walk in the rain. These hills are really killer. I'm gonna head back. I'm gonna start my day. I'm working on some diagrams, some ideas. Maybe I'll, maybe I will continue and show a diagram and uh, take a picture of it and talk about it. Like a slideshow. This is one steep hill here, oh my god. Okay guys, I'm gonna just turn this off so you don't have to listen to me huffing and puffing up away. Whew. All right. Well, now I'm back in the lab and drawing with color pencils on paper and just throwing together some ideas and uh, the diagram that I'm going to share is a very simple idea, but I kind of like um, the way I put it together. And um, what I did is I... Uh, I tried to break down these words like instruct. So you'll see um, like struct, instruct, instructs, 
instruction instructions, right? So those are different uh, parts or different words that can be combined with the same root word. We have execute, execution, executable, right? Program, programmer, use, user, compile, compiler, right? Char, chars, bit, bits. So you've got like singular and plural. And we split the words up. We have process and processor. Now I showed that the processor is also the executor. Um, I hope I showed that. Executor. Let's just add that in. Sorry, in the background, that's my fresh coffee being brewed. In case you wonder what that sound is. So I showed that the executor is the processor in this case of an instruction. So um, the programmer uses the compiler uh, to create instructions which compose the executable, which execute on the processor. So we can construct sentences by traversing this graph um, in different ways. Um, and the processor has a certain amount of bits <clears throat> and a bit has uh, two values and um, if it's a 32-bit or 64-bit processor then the number of bits also defines the uh, size of the register instructions and the register is what holds a pointer and the pointer addresses the memory I guess I don't even have memory on this graph well I have memory on, on a um, on the other picture so we'll just go to the other picture and um, the number is the uh, register and references the memory address. So not only can we decode and encode a memory address, but it's also implied that we're going to, um, the instruction can write to, and I guess writing to is constructing. Um, <clears throat> So I'm just going to put write as a connection to encode and read as a connection to decode. So we're writing and reading to memory um, and the writing can 
con construct or actually destruct. I'm just going to put destruct next to it as an alternative. And these are memory instruction, memory structures. Now the code, the actual instructions are also encoded into memory by the compiler. So the, so the code itself is encoded or decoded. And I guess what I'm trying to show in this whole idea of the bootstrap here is that, um, I'm going to make a third picture. I'm just going to talk about it as I draw it. So this is going to be like an interactive, um, I guess I could also just record a video of me drawing. Um, let me see how that's going to work. All right. Now I have um, created a 15 minute video um, of me drawing my ideas out. And um, <clears throat> basically I have three pages of ideas that are kind of interlinked. And I show um, some basic ideas of computers memory pointers addresses and stuff and we're going to build on top of this um and just imagine it all being 3d and uh, beautiful and imagine we could uh, texturalize and also um you know have all types of interactivity on that as well being a program not just a you know a video but it's a starting point and I'll put a link to the video, which I'm uploading to archive.org uh, in the show notes. And I'll put the whole thing into a blog post as well. So I've also got pictures of these pages. So we're going to start with more media, multimedia um, operation here. Also, I have, uh, I'm going to convert the uh, video to audio and tack it onto the end of the show. And I'll put a whole link, I'll put all the links in the um, show notes. And also put links to the um, Evernote um, that was shared with me. So, or maybe not because that might expose someone's, um, identity. Anyway, if you want, I'll add it in. Just let me know. So, uh, yeah, I hope you guys have a great day and enjoy this, uh, experimental art, this performance art, which we call the uh, stream of random podcast. Thank you. Okay. So this is kind of going to be an experimental, um, performance art now and um, I'm just going to draw I'm going to draw what I was talking about from the beginning so we have um, we have memory and this uh, page we'll start with page page of memory
this page of memory. So this page of memory as a sentence I guess we forgot of Okay So this page of memory and this is a page of paper. This page of paper. So we're going to make a second sentence out of that. We're just going to extend it like that. So we could have this page of memory, this page of paper. This page of paper represents uh, a page of memory. So represents re pre -zent. re presents. This page of paper represents a page of memory. This page of paper is is present. Okay. It's present where this page of paper is present before me. It's present for me. It's present before you. Physically. Digitally.
this page of paper is present before me physically. Um, and is present before the camera. which records digitally. Now recording is a verb. We're going to use a different color. It's going to record data. camera record data digitally and that data will be encoded record encode compress So the camera is going to record and compress and encode the data digitally for me to send to you send, transfer over the internets. And I'm using a, um, a table here before the camera on the table. And the table is serving as a tripod or a camera stand. So we're describing the situation. So this is a self-descriptive piece of paper. So this piece of paper, this page of memory, this piece of paper represents a page of memory that is self-descriptive, that represents the paper represents page of memory and the paper represents itself. It's self. The paper represents itself. 
the paper is self-representing. It's describing, representing, describing. I'm not going to write that out. It's a self-descriptive piece of paper. And it's representing itself to you. And this is a self-descriptive idea, memory, page of ideas. Oh, mem, meme. So it's a self-descriptive meme that copies itself um, over the camera from my mind concept, meme, mind. To your mind. It's the meme transfer, maybe. Okay, so now we're going to go back a page. So this was my first page where I said um, we write or encode into memory of a computer of a executor and the executor the executor is the processor with a certain amount of bits you know i mean we don't have really two or four bit processors but we have 8 bit 16 bit 32 bit 64 bit processors theoretically we could have you know 128 256 uh, bit processors 8 bits is a character 16 to 32 bits are wide characters. Groups of them are strings. And a register of a processor of a certain bit size, you have 8-bit registers in an 8-bit processor, 16-bit, etc., etc. So that's the bit size of the processor, which is the bit size of the pointer, which is what you can reference in memory And when you dereference a pointer or follow, we go to a different page of memory. How's that? We just followed a pointer to another where we're going to read or dec decode an address and dereference it to a page of memory and then read the numbers out and decode or read those instructions for the construction. So if we represent everything as instructions to construct, right? This is kind of getting into um, representing data as construction, right? The constructive viewpoint of data and the const, the cons, uh, instruction in Lisp is, um, I hope I don't run out of memory. 
Kant's in Lisp is producing lists and tuples, and we're constructing constructors in memory um, out of constant strings and characters and also creating references to them to construct larger and larger structures. So we have atoms, and these are all different structures or types. We go to type here. Type can be a list, an array, but it also be a bit, you know, characters, multiple characters, wide strings, 32-bit and 64-bit wide strings. Um, but a type can also be an instruction or a compiler can be a whole type of program. So we can get bigger and bigger types. And um, the programmer is a user who uses the compiler to create instructions, which creates an executable, which is loaded into a processor by an operating system. for execution, and it is executed, executed on a processor owned by a user consuming, well, where's our memory? Processor has memory. And disk. attached resources on the bus. And those bus resources are addressed by pointers or registers and instructions to read and write to them. All right, let me uh, see if I ran out of disk yet. 15 minutes.